Welcome to the Future of What. I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rock Stars. Today, we're revisiting some of the interviews from the past year and a half with artists talking about the business issues that affect them. It's all coming up on the Future of What. This is CD Baby artist and lawyer Christiane Kinney talking about the recent Spotify lawsuits. Christiane, welcome to the future of what? Thank you. Thanks for having me again. This is your second time. I love it. We're gonna we're gonna start a club for people who've been on the show more than twice. You get to <laughs> nice. you get a free t-shirt <laughs> and a pizza. Ooh, now we're talking. <laughs> <laughs> so today I wanted to talk to you because of your exciting dual role as both a lawyer and a musician about these two lawsuits that are being brought against Spotify, right. these two class action lawsuits. We have spoken to a couple other lawyers and we've also spoken to Melissa Farrick, who is the plaintiff, the lead plaintiff in one of the cases. So we're, I think we are pretty clear for the audience on what the cases are about. But I'm interested in your perspective on these cases. Like as a musician, how do you feel about these cases? And, you know, where do you think this is going to end up? Well, it's really an interesting thing. I, I do have the dual role as an attorney and a musician. And I I tend, when I look at a lawsuit, and especially a class action like this, I tend to look at it with my lawyer hat on. This was kind of an inevitability because they were very honest and upfront about their business plan. And, you know, I love to tell people, look, when you're creating something like a Spotify, you know, when we're at these music tech companies, I'm like, look, there is this business model that is build something cool and work it out on the back end. And that type of business model has become more and more popular because the licensing structures are so difficult for people to grasp and understand, but but there's a real danger in that. And the dangers are that you're going to have these types of lawsuits coming up and going after you. As far as what it means to me as a musician, you know, I mean, I struggle the same as a lot of artists do with the amount of money that you're getting per stream. But the reality is this is a streaming world. It's something that the consumers like and obviously love. You know, how many how many active users does Spotify have now? I think it's like 50 million or more. And they were working their way up quickly. So, you know, it's it's not going away, but this is a real risk to them. This is something they have to take, obviously, really seriously because... I mean, you obviously have the 200 million and the 150 million in damages that they're going after. But beyond that, this is a class action. So the attorney's fees are going to be enormous. And that's an upfront cost to the attorneys. But what the musicians get on the back end, Melissa will get something, David will get something. Most musicians aren't really going to get a huge benefit from this, except that it provides a mechanism for the conversation to move forward. You know, obviously Spotify was already, I'm talking too much, but Spotify was already talking in December about, you know, building this publishing admin kind of system and database so that we could handle all of this. That's going to take years. So these are mechanisms to try and figure out a workability around the mechanicals for these interactive streaming services. 
So you say you think most artists are not going to receive much, if anything, from this <laughs> this lawsuit. The attorneys um, are going to receive a lot, and and honestly, you know, I mean, that's it's somewhat fair because they're fronting the costs for this, and class actions are very expensive. The attorneys will see receive something. The core plaintiffs will receive something. Some musicians will receive something, but I think to get a class certified, you know, we're probably going to get letters in the mail in three to five years, giving us notice as a class member, allowing us to opt in. We'll probably get to select a $5 one-time payment or maybe a one-month premium Spotify service. (laughs) You know, I mean, that's the type of things you get in these class notices. So for the the mass of us, I think the more interesting thing with these cases is what's going to come of it. You know, I mean, these are, like I said, these are almost, they enable the conversation to expand beyond, you know, fitting a, a circle into a square hole right now, which is kind of how we work around these streaming issues with the copyright laws being what they are. So something's going to happen from it. Whether or not we're going to get our global database of all publishers ever, it's been tried so many times. So I, I doubt that, you know, it's a pie in the sky of that, but, you know, maybe. Do you think it'll change practices at Spotify, though? Do you think Spotify starting now will actually start trying to get mechanical licenses or at least sending ROIs to musicians before they put their stuff up on the service? You know, it- it's a difficult thing because they already chose their business plan, their model for this in the, in the States in whenever they started 2011, I think they came here and they had a choice at that time that they could have launched with a smaller library of songs and they could have just gone with the songs that were licensed, but they didn't. And so they chose a model that had a risk involved to it. The risk now, I mean, if you pull, some people say, well, they just need to provide the list of all of the songs that aren't, that they don't have mechanicals for. And now that they've been sued, they're basically just, you know, they're not going to gift somebody a list of all the class members. (laughs) Mm. But, but I do like the idea of that, you know, I mean, it can be like sound exchange. I've seen friends on sound exchange whose names, you know, come in alphabetical order with mine. I'm like, Oh, Hey, you're owed money for, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, and it's it's a different hybrid, but, but that works. You, you know, I mean, if you're looking for people really honestly looking for people, I don't think it's pragmatic at all to serve, you know, the special notices on the copyright office, because that was really created for a system where you have a label that maybe has an artist doing some cover songs and they have to clear one or two songs, or even if it's a full album of 10 or 12 songs that you have to clear these for and don't know somebody. I mean, as an attorney, I make calls a lot and it's pretty easy to find rights holders. I looked up David, I looked up Melissa, pulled up BMI.com, you know, found them right away in the repertoire search database, found Melissa also on the ASCAP database because sometimes people switch. It could be another person with her exact name, found both of them in HFA. And actually, it's interesting. I heard I don't know if this is true or not, but I heard that Spotify had outsourced this initially when they launched here to Harry Fox Agency to deal with the mechanicals because they knew it was an issue. But it's such a grand scale. So it's not like you can have an attorney clearing every song. I think they have 20 million songs or more, and there's 20,000 being added daily. So when you get on that level, that's why I think this is a conversation starter honestly, of how do we deal with this? I I do think that, (laughs) and that's your question, but I do think Spotify will change their practices and they already 
I think before the lawsuit had announced that they were going to start working on this global type of publishing admin system, this database. But again, that's, that's going to take years, but, you know, rather than outsourcing it, I think they do have to take that on themselves and spend a substantial amount of time and energy making that work. So one of the other lawyers we spoke to said that he was speaking about David Lowry's suit in particular. And he said, if David had brought this as an individual, this would have been a slam dunk, open and shut case. Mm -hmm. But because he chose to go with it as a class action, it's going to really take a really long time. And there are these hoops now that have to be jumped through for musicians to prove that they're part of the class. Like you have to actually... You know, you have to have your copyrights registered with the Library of Congress. You have to have, you know, X, Y, and Z to prove that you're actually a member of the class. Right. Why do you suppose they actually decided to go with a class action rather than a, an individual suit? Because there are mass violations happening here and the attorneys can make more money. <laughs> and ultimately, it, you know, let's, let's just be on the side of the attorney for, for a moment <laughs> and assume that their intentions are valid. You know, they can protect the little guy. Not everybody has the ability to bring an individual lawsuit like this. Not everyone's going to have the resources. Not everyone's going to have the access to attorneys. So if the goal is to protect the musician, it's very smart to bring a class action, this type of case, because it's, there is a good possibility that they can certify a class here. You know, the damages are somewhat easy to establish. With with interactive streaming, there's a formula involved, so it becomes a little more complicated, and maybe they can argue on the other side, okay, well, this person's getting one million streams, but this person's getting fewer, you know, mm, two streams. Right. <laughs> They're not very good. <laughs> right. You know, so, so there are complexities. doesn't make David's lawsuit any less valid. It just means that ultimately a class might not get certified. And that, you know, the, the class action work that I've done in the past, usually on the defense side of things, we have gotten classes decertified because there's a lot of hoops to jump through. But I think in the end, the reason for it is really to protect artists that couldn't bring an individual lawsuit or that wouldn't, you know, and to, and to make this more of a global conversation for artists. Well, Christiane Kinney is a lawyer and a musician, and <laughs> she's joined us today from her home. And we really appreciate that because I love the fact that you can bring us both perspectives. So, Christiane, thanks so much for being on The Future of What. Uh, thank you, guys. Teddy's Head by Kleenex Lilliput. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW.
This is David Lowry of Cracker, Camper Van Beethoven, and the Tricordist blog discussing transparency in royalty reporting. So you've written several posts about this Berkeley Rethink Music study. Can you tell us who funded the study and why that's important? It appears from the, you know, the statements on the report that it's funded by Cobalt Music, which is a music publishing administration sort of company. But what's interesting about Cobalt is Cobalt is at least somewhat funded, certainly has a fairly large investment from Google through their Google Ventures. So when we see that, that begins to make us somewhat suspicious because, you know, Google owns YouTube. And if there's any place where we're lacking transparency in the music business is what the heck goes on with YouTube? (laughs) What are we being paid for? How are we being paid? How is that calculated, et cetera, et cetera. So this study focuses on the money that's being paid out to artists by labels and publishers, but not really on where that money is coming from, as you said. And in my opinion, transparency should begin there. Yes, absolutely. That's basically what we're getting at is that we realize there's a there is always going to be some sort of black box money at the PROs, BMI and ASCAP, at the labels and distributors and such, because with the number of songs out there, there's always going to be some money that doesn't get assigned somewhere. But if you look at the grand scheme of things, that is a smaller black box than than what we see at the digital distributors. What I'm concerned about is that there's actually more of an issue with transparency on digital services side, like how are they generating revenue? What How much are their expenses in generating this revenue? Which ads, for instance, on the ad-supported side of things in Spotify and YouTube, which ads get assigned to the artist revenue streams and which ones don't? Because this isn't totally clear and there's no real information on this. Right. And my favorite part about what you said in one of your posts had to do with, you know, it, it the difference between a black box, let's say that Sound Exchange would have had, and we're about to talk to Mike Huppy, the president of Sound Exchange. Uh-huh. And the the black box that that Sound Exchange was dealing with was money that came in and that they were unable to find the proper place for. But they have no incentive; they have no stake in holding onto that money. They would like to pay it out to artists and labels. But with something like Spotify, let's just take Spotify as an example with with a streaming service. As you point out, they shouldn't even have this problem if they were doing their licensing properly in the first place. Right. One of the problems with why there's a black box at the streaming services is that they sort of, at least in my case, it looks like they just put my entire song catalog up there without really checking to see if they had licenses for everything. Like some things they had licenses for because some of my music is published by a major label and just or administered by a major label, but some of it isn't. And so in my case, it looks like they just put it out there without obtaining the licenses first. So that makes it very difficult for them to pay, right? Now, they appear to be retroactively going back and trying to find some of these <laughs> or to obtain some of these licenses. But I, I know that there's 
you know, there's there's a good 50 or 60 of my songs out there that they're using without a proper license. So that would make it very difficult for them to pay me. There's another issue in there, though, also as well. See, when we're told that, for instance, like 50% of the revenue or 70% of the revenue or 60% of the revenue, depending on the service, is being paid out to rights holders, there's also usually a caveat in there that it's minus the fees that are associated with sort of sort of the fees associated with obtaining this advertising, right? There's, there's probably fees paid out to brokers who, you know, sort of essentially collect advertisers who want to advertise on these services. And there is zero transparency there. We don't know who those brokers are, what these expenses are that are charged back against the advertising revenue. And sometimes, at least I suspect in the case of YouTube, it's essentially Google's advertising wing paying itself and deducting expenses before the revenue is sort of put into the pie to be divided up between rights holders and YouTube. So you see what I'm saying? Like there's there's also this sort of non-transparency in what those expenses are to obtain the advertising that seem to be fairly significant. Absolutely. As you say in one of your posts, you say 70% of X. Well, that doesn't help us because we don't actually know what that X is. I mean, that's an important part. And that's something that, you know, that's why people have record deals. I mean, I think it's an interesting report. I, you know, I don't want to be 100% negative to it because one of the things we just spoke to Panos Panay, who works for uh-huh. um, Berkeley ICE. And he uh-huh. was saying that one of the reasons they published this report was to bring issues that are important for musicians to know about into the open. And listen, you can't fault that. I think transparency is an important issue. I think that more musicians need to understand the business side, et cetera. But there are some very problematic parts of this report, one of which is that right now we've got a situation where People don't have access to information about how much money services like YouTube are making in advertising revenue. Right. Even Wall Street has complained about this. Right, which when seems Wall impossible. Street <laughs> is saying that YouTube and Spotify and all these services are completely non-transparent, you know, you can't get a blacker pot calling a kettle black. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's like the ultimate. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the, this call for transparency, I think, is, is wonderful. I think there's some good things in the report, but I just don't understand how you can do that without also trying to, you know, shed light onto the digital services. And is this because essentially they're funded in some way through YouTube, Google, or that, that you know, at least there's some sort of financial connection there? Is that why? that was omitted? Was it uncomfortable for the authors to do that? Was it just an oversight? But, you know, it's something that's that's worth questioning. Well, my main interest in discussing this study on this show is that I believe we have a serious PR problem in the music industry, and we have for years. And that is Mm -hmm. just, you know, that this study went for the low-hanging fruit, which is, ooh, you know, labels take artists' money. Well, you know, tell us something we don't know. I have a label, too. (laughs) I'm an artist and I also have a label. We do take artists' money, but it's usually because we've spent money like promoting that album 
or, you know, marketing or, you know, hiring a publicist or tour support and things like that. Right. Right. We do take, speaking as a label owner, we do take artists money, but. Right. But um, there's a difference between recouping your expenses and taking your agreed upon portion which you have a contract with the artist for, which is 50% or 60% or whatever you right. have agreed to, and stealing money, you know, taking money right. away that should be rightfully for the artist. Right. And I think that, you know, the problem I have with this report is that's how it was publicized, was, you know, 20 to 50% of money does not make it to artists. And that's just right. completely misleading and unfair. Well, first of all, that quote is based on anonymous sources without actually any data to back it up. I don't doubt that 10% doesn't make it to artists. I mean, it's a messy business. Right. <laughs> There's a lot of rights holders out there and stuff like that. But at the same time, if it was really 50%, you're talking billions of dollars in fraud. I'm not sure you have an, you know, kind of an Enron style fraud going on here and nobody's calling their lawyers or their accountants or even, you know, the attorney generals and stuff like that. So, again, I'm also suspect of that 20 to 50 percent figure. It seems high to me and it's not really supported with anything. So uh, I, I don't know. It's not supported with any data. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's just attributed to anonymous sources, which yes. is all, always suspect. It is. It is. It's very. And the, the whole report has sort of a problem of authorship as well, where it's like, where are the authors? There are no names on this report, which. <laughs> right. Is what did your last guest, did he shed any light on who authored the report? Because it's not clear from the report itself who authored it and. Nope, he didn't, although he was quite supportive of the report, and he certainly was taking ownership of it. He wasn't taking authorship, but yeah. Right. So the one last thing I wanted to ask you about quickly is that early in the report, the authors, whoever they are, quote someone as saying, streaming services have no incentive to invest in transparent reporting and accounting systems, which are expensive. And I just thought, what an interesting, like, no incentives? Well, they they have a fiduciary responsibility to pay those whose music they're using. I, I think that's that's a that's a crazy pants statement <laughs> right there. Um, because I mean, say I'm a songwriter, right? I didn't ask Spotify to get into the business. Oh, okay, we'll distribute your songs. Oh God, now we have to figure out how to account for these songwriters. <laughs> they begged us and begged <laughs> us. Please, please. Stream they our music. begged us to get into this business. I mean right. we didn't beg them to get into this business. <laughs> right. And are you telling me that wait a minute, are you telling me that the computer technology industry can't <laughs> solve this problem? Right. <laughs> if they can't <laughs> and they want artists to solve it. I mean, right. well, we can't even keep the van clean. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, so so that's a little that's a little crazy there too. It's like they have no well, I, I think they do have an incentive in just that they're in the business and they need to account for this stuff. But but that does that does illustrate the attitude. I mean, it's sort of like what I've shown with my catalog is that you know, there are a lot of songs they're using and somebody hasn't done the licensing properly and they could have got a, a compulsory license using the federal statutes anyway. But that hasn't even been done, which makes me want to turn around and, you know, the first place I'm going to look 
if there's a problem with transparency is that the digital services, which clearly haven't obtained all the proper licenses from my catalog. Well, right. Exactly. And the fact that we can't have a conversation about how much a stream is worth because that stream value changes depending on, you know, the territory and the time of day. And I don't know whether it's ad supported. I mean, there's so many Mm -hmm. if, if, ifs that we can't even really tell you what the value of a stream is. is. Right. So we, so we don't even know if it's a good deal for us. Or not. Right. From an individual <laughs> artist's viewpoint, it's really difficult to, to figure out if the streaming services are a good value for us or not. Right. If the, because, you know, we can't even tell what we're being paid, paid. Right. Correct. For a while there, here's another interesting thing too. For a while there, some of the labels, that I've talked to were, I'm not sure how they were licensing, if they were licensing directly with Spotify, if they were going through distributors or what, but they could see the difference between the paid streams and the free ad-supported streams and see the difference. And then other labels are not able to do that, and they just have it all lumped together, right? Right. So there's a very basic bit of transparency that we could use right there, which is like, can we see the difference between how much I'm getting paid per spin on the paid service versus the ad supported service. Right. But because for instance, in the case of Spotify, it's an IPO driven company. It's going to want to have as many users as possible. And they do not have an incentive to split between, you know, the, the free and the paid tier. Right. Right. Absolutely. David Lowry is a musician and blogger. You can find his writing at the tricordist.com. David, thanks so much for being on our show. Thanks for doing the show. This is the story of your red right ankle And how it came to meet your leg And how the muscle bone and sinews tangled And how the skin was softly shed it whispered, oh, it here to me For we are bound by symmetry Whatever differences our lives have been We together make a limb This is the story of your red right This is the story of your gypsy uncle You never knew cause he was dead And how his face was carved and ripped with wrinkles In the picture in your head And remember how you found the key To his hideout in the But you wanted to keep his secret safe So you threw the key away This is the story of your gypsy uncle
was Red Right Ankle by the Decemberists. You're listening to The Future of What? If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. This is singer-songwriter Laura Veers. So today on The Future of What? We are lucky enough to have in studio with us the wonderful singer-songwriter Laura Veers. Laura, Hi. welcome. Hi. Hi, Portia. How are you? I'm good. How are good. you? I'm great. I'm so glad to have you here. Thanks for having me. So today we are talking to people about how they got into music in the first place, which sometimes is hard to get all the way back there to like really remember how it all started. But that's what I'd like you to do is tell us from the very beginning, your earliest memories of how you got into music. Well, I was trained as a concert pianist and toured Europe as a three-year-old. Wow! <laughs> I knew you'd have great stories. <laughs> it's a total lie. I didn't get into music till I was in college. I had family members that were playing around the house for fun guitar and piano, and I took a few lessons here and there. But And my brother was in a band, and I thought that looked cool, but I didn't see any girls in bands, and I, it just didn't seem like something girls were doing. So... I, I didn't really explore it until I saw there were women doing music in college. And the Riot Girl movement really inspired me a lot to start my own songwriting and my own guitar playing. And as soon as I started playing guitar, I started writing songs. And that's really how I see myself in the world as a songwriter first, a singer second, and a guitar player third, maybe, if I had to do that. I saw a photo of you from college where you had a shaved head you were naked, you had hairy legs, and you had a guitar. Yes, and the guitar was was covering up the important parts. Exactly. <laughs> yes, there is. That's My husband and I did a TED Talk, and I showed that picture, and my mom was not pleased about that. <laughs> of course, I have to let her down sometime, right? But yeah, I didn't really get into it till my early 20s, and then I was very serious. My grades dropped, and I was formerly a straight-A student and really into... I did graduate with honors from, from my school, but... I quickly learned that, you know, I didn't want to be a geologist, which was the the degree that I had. And I didn't really know what else to do. I mean, I just wanted to do music, but it's so hard. It's so hard to figure it out when you're a young person and you're like, well, wait, how do I connect all these dots and actually make an income? And I mean, my whole TED Talk was about that. And my husband, too, he's Tucker Martin is his name and he's a producer. And we've made tons of records together and been in the business for 20 years each. And we both really wandered around a lot. With our paths not really making sense at all for many years until slowly they they did and now we're we're artists and we see ourselves as that for our our life and I mean who knows how long it'll be a thing that we make money at but so far so good and we can keep doing it. So going back to your college experience, was it the playing of the guitar and writing songs that captured you, or was it the community? Did you find a community at college? It was both. For sure. I mean, there was certainly something that happened when I first started writing songs that felt deep, like, wow, this is a whole world. This is not intellectual, really. It could be if you went into like music theory and everything, but I didn't really go that route. It was more, I could just sense there was a depth there, a mystery and almost this infinite path, which I still see it as. It's like you're never done learning music. So I felt I felt something click in me for sure. Like this is this is awesome. I want to do this. And I'm going to do this over and over and over till I can be good at it. And it was a harsh toke for sure <laughs> when I started playing out because I had terrible stage fright and Ooh. I couldn't play at all. I couldn't play what I was trying to say in my song. Like I was too nervous, too nervous to execute the guitar parts and too, my voice was shaky and weird and sounded really bad. But God bless the souls who watched me in those early, early days. Cause I just, I did that over and over and over open mics and then 
little college coffee shop shows and then, you know, tiny little tours up and down the West Coast with three people in the audience. And then, you know, over and over and over, I started learning how to perform. But no one really teaches you that. It's kind of like just school of hard knocks. And some people are really natural performers. I, I would say I'm not one of those. I would say I'm a, more of a natural songwriter. But even now the performance, like certain times it feels so effortless and, and fluid, but other times it feels like a real struggle. So you kept at it because of the songwriting portion? Yeah, I felt like, well, this is so fun for me. This is so cool. And I love this. I, got, I felt compelled to share it. And initially that was as a solo person, but then I learned about the Riot Girl movement and started an all-girl punk band. And that was great because I could have my buddies up there with me and I could be the background person, the guitar player and the songwriter and like the backup singer. And then I had my friend Deva, who was a superstar natural performer, who was super tall and redhead, kind of like you. She had <laughs> short hair at the time and really just outgoing and crazy and in-your-face punk rocker. So I could kind of be the back-behind-the-scenes guitar player, and I loved that role. And that was that was really instrumental in helping me get over some of my fears. Absolutely. And just having fun with it. And then I wrote a letter to Bikini Kill, <laughs> and they wrote back. Toby Vale wrote back to me in 1995, probably. Wow. And I, because I asked her, this was before I started the band, I was like, I really want to start a band. How do I do it? And she wrote back, which was so awesome. I was in the middle of nowhere in Minnesota and got this letter from her. And she was like, just play with as many people as you can and have fun and you can do it. And, you know, I, I didn't know any of those people. I just knew about the, I would see bands come through Minneapolis. Like this band, the Saltines, was was a like all-girl punk band that we would go see. Uh-huh. And, but I'd never seen Bikini Kill. But we had their records and we would play them super loud in our dorm room and <laughs> jump around on the bed. And so it was really, really important to get that letter. Yeah. And, and move forward. And then also I did see Slater Kinney in the like mid-90s in Olympia, which was super amazing. And there were a few, like Ani DeFranco was also a big part of my inspiration because I was like, well, she's doing it. She can sell her music from the back of her car and go on tour at age 19 and have a shaved head and people come to her shows. So why can't I do this? You know, <laughs> like it was a really good thing to be able to see that. Yeah. So now in, I'm interested, you had that experience of having a punk band and having a charismatic front person and you got to be comfortably just the guitar player and songwriter. What made you decide to take the next step and be out there by yourself? The lead singer wanted to quit. So we graduated and I was like, let's let's move to Seattle and keep the band going. And the other ladies were like, no. Well, the other two would have done it, but then the lead singer was out. She just didn't feel it in her bones, you know, even though she was a total natural. Mm -hmm. She just didn't feel it. She Some didn't people have the, don't. She didn't have the fire like that deep, you yeah. know. So... I was like, well, I guess I just have to do that. I got to just like muster it up and do it myself because I love writing songs. So it was just out of necessity. Yeah, because she was done. And I did I did make some some more bands in Seattle. I played in a funk band. I learned how to impro improvise. and But I realized, you know, holding a band together is tough. And I didn't have I didn't make the connections that I made in college again with women in particular to make another all girl punk band. So I just struck out on my own and realized, well, I also got interested in country blues guitar, which is really great if you're a solo performer because the guitar does so much. Mm -hmm. There's a lot happening with the bass notes. There's a counterpoint melody happening with the, the fingers. And, and then your voice can do a third thing. So it's almost like three instruments happening. 
just wow. with a guitar and a voice. Uh-huh. So I was like, well, I can do a lot with a guitar and a voice. And that was that was how I structured my first album. And I really got deep into country blues music and inspired by a lot of the old, like Elizabeth Cotton and Mans Lipscomb and Mississippi John Hurt and all those people who were amazing musicians could do so much with just a voice and a guitar. Mm-hmm. And that's how I started my, my early records. Now, I have to ask you this because I am a drummer, as you know. Yes. But I tried to play guitar for about 12 seconds, and it was so hard that I just quit. (laughs) And I'm so impressed when I meet somebody who stuck with it. So how long did you play? I mean, did you pick up the guitar and instantly start playing with your punk band, sort of in the beginning when you barely knew how to play, or what? Yes, Pretty much. I mean, I had the basic chords, but bar chords were a struggle. To get my hand strong enough to play like a solid F was a long time of practicing. But I was one of those nerds that just wanted to play all the time, you know, and get really pretty accomplished. Although I was I was sort of, I probably sounded pretty bad in the beginning. I know I did, but I'm worried. I would worry more about my voice in the beginning. The huh. guitar never felt like that big of a struggle. Oh, wow. That's awesome. The voice so you're probably was a natural. The yeah. The guitar has always felt natural to me. It's never oh, wow. felt like, I mean, like I said, the bar chords was, that was hard to get my hands strong enough to do that. But the rest of it, I mean, don't get me wrong, country blues guitar is really hard to play. And I would spend hours just slowly, slowly working through almost like in a scientific way to learn this music. And then slowly it would start to come and flow. And then it was no problem anymore. But to learn something new that's difficult, to, it took me a lot of practice. Wow. But you felt like your voice was the thing that actually needed the work. Yeah, and I had I did take some voice lessons, which helped. But I think voice for me is all about confidence. Mm-hmm. And I mean, most of music is, most of art is, but but the singing particularly, it, it will reveal your your fears quickly <laughs> under the microscope of the microphone. Did you feel like you had to experiment with different ways of singing in order to find the place where you were comfortable? I think. Yeah, I mean, I did the yelling thing. Uh-huh. I did, I did softer stuff. I would, I did a drawl. I mean, I, I kind of copied Gillian Welch for a while. I awesome, you know, just you know, tried tried out different things until I feel like for many people, and this was true in my case, it just takes a bunch of years of doing different kinds of of art to find your own voice. And by that, I mean my own songwriting voice and my own singing voice. Right. And and I still, I mean, I guess I'm still finding both of those things, but I do feel more settled in them and I enjoy them more. Well, and it's just funny. It's always interesting to talk to an artist to see about their perspective, because from my perspective as a listener, I've always thought you had a very distinctive, very strong voice. You know, so when I listen to a piece of music, the first thing I think is, oh, that's a Laura Veer song because of your voice. Because of my singing voice or because my songwriting voice? Because of your singing voice. voice. I see. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's good to know because to me, it's just my boring old voice. <laughs> but I can see that because I hear that in other artists. You know, yeah. like they have a distinctive sound to their voice. Right. Right. So. Which is, and it's just funny, you know, because some people would say, oh, well, it's my guitar. That's right. that's the thing that you're going to know know me for. Right. But it, that's fascinating. Yeah. So you got yourself going with your voice. You had the guitar, and then you started playing tons of open mics. And at what point would you say you were sort of ready for the next step? Like, where did you take it from there? I I applied to Bumpershoot, which is the festival in Seattle, with a little four-track cassette demo, and I got in. Wow. I was super surprised. They called me, and they said, we'd like to offer you a fee of $50. And I said, do I have to pay you $50? (laughs) And she said, no, we'll pay you. I was like, okay, that sounds awesome. I'll You're be there. Like, I'm a professional. <laughs> so I was like 10 times what I'd ever made, you know. Mm-hmm. So I I realized like, hey, 
I should make a CD because that that's like four months away. You know, I, wow. I'd like to have something to sell. And so I met this man on Orcas Island. I was living on San Juan at the time who had a studio and he was willing to record me for free. And we spent three hours in there. So I made a record in three hours and it's <gasps> really embarrassing and I would never sell it now. <laughs> But I did print it up. I printed up a thousand copies. And my friend like hand silk screened the covers. And they were just little jackets, you know, little uh-huh. folded things. And I I sold them and I called the bumper sheet. I was like, how many CDs should I bring to the show? Because I think I'm going to sell a lot. I think I should bring like 250 in there. They said, people at your stage usually sell five to 10 CDs. <laughs> but I did, I did bring, you know, my stack and sold like five to 10. Uh-huh. But I still had my remaining 900 and. <laughs> Ninety-five, <laughs> yeah, and um, so I took those out on my little tours up and down the West Coast, and then a couple years passed, and I made another record. But that one turned out great, and that one largely turned out great because Tucker made it uh, <laughs> in his studio, and it was the first one of ten that we made together. Wow! And I love that record. It's very sparse. It's it was I had kind of done enough songwriting to find a little bit of my own songwriting voice. I was twenty-five at the time, and maybe twenty-six, and I'm. Honestly, sometimes when I, my kids like that record, and sometimes when I hear it, I, I feel envious of it, uh-huh. of my my younger self. Just the simplicity of it? Yeah, and just the simplicity of the artistry. Mm-hmm. It was just like nothing to lose and never done it really and so fresh. Mm-hmm. That kind of feeling that you have when you're 25. Mm-hmm. It's kind of hard to get when you're 41, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so Tell me about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Totally. So you made that record and did that come out on a label or did you release that yourself? Released it myself and was trying to find some help. But KEXP helped me get some listeners for that. But it didn't really come out on a label till later. And then I made another one with Tucker and that one was luckily Tucker had a connection to Simon Raymond in London Mm -hmm. with Bella Union and he put it out. And then that gave me a platform for the next one, which really took off in England called Mm -hmm. Carbon Glacier. And that was 2004. And then then that got the attention of the States and Nonesuch put that out, which was a huge boost for me. Yeah. And although I had, again, I kept thinking things were going to go faster than they were because it came out on Nonesuch and then I got a booking agent. They set up a tour. I had done this successful tour in England and France came back to the States to start hitting the road in the States, and no one was coming to the shows. It was just like three people at that show in Dallas, three people in New Orleans, four people, and, you know, you're driving eight hours a day and Mm -hmm. then doing, like, your whole setup with the band, and everybody's demoralized. But, I mean, the next time we did this tour in the States, there was, like, 25 people, you know, and the next time there might have been, like, 100. So it did happen, but it took years, Mm -hmm. bit by bit. And then, but I do appreciate that, None such picked it up because I was struggling over here. Mm-hmm. I was getting some foothold in Europe, like some artists do, and not at all in the States. And so they gave me a boost. How is it for you in Europe now? It's about the same. It's about evened out. Oh, so, cool. like, I can still go over there and, like, fill three to 500 capacity rooms on a CD release or album release tour. Or, or in London, maybe 800 people. But, you know, that's that's sustainable, but not really if you bring a band. So sometimes I'll just go over there solo. Mm-hmm. And just make a little money, come back. Or if I make an album, I'll go tour with the album over there and lose some money. But it gives the album a boost and I'll go back solo and just kind of continue over and over. And I, I 
I'm at this point in my career where I have a sustainable audience so far. I mean, they might drop off, but they haven't yet. And it doesn't seem to be particularly growing, but it allows me to continue to make my art and continue to run my own label because I was dropped by Nonsuch, which was a huge letdown at the time. Mm -hmm. But then Chad Crouch, who runs Hush, Hush Records, put his name in the hat to run my label because I was thinking, well, maybe I should just really put my own efforts out there on my own. Maybe that's the smartest thing. And it ended up being great for my next record, which was July Flame. And so, you know, these things seem like a huge letdown at the time, but then they are often an opportunity to start something else that may be even better. And so I feel grateful that that I've, I don't know, I just feel grateful for all of the twists and turns that have happened. Mm -hmm. And what's nice is that now you're what we would call a career musician, which is you can make a living from your art you can maximize your profits from selling CDs and stuff because you run your own label. Yeah. And you can go on tour when you need to and want to. Yeah. It's kind of a, it's it's an enviable position to be in, actually. It is. And I sometimes feel like uh, something bad's going to happen or something. <laughs> like, things are going don't, great. Don't say that, Laura. Yeah. Knock the knock, side of the studio. Knock on wood. I mean, I just, you know, I do feel so grateful and lucky and like my life has like I'm, I've got almost everything I've ever wanted, and so it's, it's kind of an amazing place to feel that that I'm in. It's, That's wonderful. But one thing I do feel always is that I'm never done with music. Mm -hmm. I'm never satisfied. I'm, I've written that song, and then the next one comes. Like, well, but you didn't quite. Yes, that's awesome. You got that one. But then what? What's next? And like mm -hmm. that feeling never seems to to leave me, which I'm grateful for. Because if it left, then I'd be like, well, I guess I'm just gonna be a woman of leisure now <laughs> and just lie around drinking lemonade. Yeah. So what do you do? You have a super busy life. You have a husband, a house, two children, you know, yeah. a yeah. busy life. How do you find that time to songwrite? To write I songs? have to set it aside. And I've always done that, been very diligent and very protective of the time. So four hours tends to be enough. Although if I now that I have two kids, six hours is good because I can have two hours to do some like shopping or cleaning or, you know, I hear you. Shuffling around the millions of things that need to get shuffled. Laundry. Yes. And then four hours to do my work, which inevitably ends up being like an hour of songwriting, which actually is all I need. Mm -hmm. But I need the other three hours to be like poking around the Internet or like getting my idea from that book or just sitting there staring off into space or whatever. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So what is next for you? Do you have another album in the works? I do. Yeah. I'm going to be working with these two other women on a, an album in November. It's Katie Lang and Nico Case. We've been writing the songs together and we're going to make a trio record in November with Tucker. Oh my God. I want to pre-order it now. <laughs> Can I pre-order it now? <laughs> we don't have a label yet, but yeah. That sounds amazing. You don't have a label yet? Well, they're working on it. Oh, they're working on yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. The manager's all right. Well, that sounds absolutely fabulous. Yeah, I'm excited about it. It's going to be neat. To, it's been fun to collaborate in a songwriting way with them because I've never really done much co-writing. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole other way of, of approaching music and songwriting. And it's been fun. Like I said, at this stage in my career, I've been doing this fairly alone. You know, I've had Tucker as a collaborator, as the producer and the maker of the records and my bandmates. But mostly I've been on my own in a room just writing these songs. And so to have others there chiming in and bringing in ideas and lyrics. It's been really fun. Laura Veers is a singer-songwriter. She lives here in Portland. Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Portia. Banda, 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 banda. 
was Panda 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 by Deerhoof. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. This is Valerie Day of the band New Shoes discussing the Fair Play, Fair Pay Act. Valerie, welcome to the future of what? Thanks, Portia. It's great to be here. So tell us, as someone with a top five hit song and a gold record, how much money do you see in performance royalties for terrestrial radio play of those songs? Nothing. Yeah. Oh. Zilch. Zilch. Nada. Nothing. Zero. Okay. So that's what we're here to talk about today. (laughs) So the good news is that your husband, John Smith, wrote these songs. So you have always gotten money from the songwriting royalties. Right. It's kind of like he's Dolly Parton and I'm Whitney Houston. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's the example that people use sometimes when you're talking about, like, how does publishing work? Well, Whitney Houston sang that famous song from The Bodyguard, but Dolly Parton wrote it. Right. So... When it gets played on the radio, who makes the money? Dolly. Yes. And Whitney and Dolly aren't married as far as I know, (laughs) actually. Yes. And so anyway, yeah, I've been very fortunate that John wrote that music, you know. Absolutely. That's been a good thing. That has been a good thing for you guys. So when internet radio came on the scene, did you guys sign up for Sound Exchange right away or were you kind of skeptical? Because a lot of people were skeptical of Sound Exchange. They were like the Nigerian prince. They were like, we yes. have money for you. Right. You get that email and you think, I don't know about this. <laughs> this sounds kind of sketch. But I called them. They they sent us a couple of emails and then I called them and they were so nice and they explained it very well. And I said, okay, sign us up. So we've been, I think since 2010, we've been doing Sound Exchange. Great. And how is that going for you? It is amazing. <laughs> We've probably, I don't know if you want to talk numbers here because it's kind of, I mean, so hard to tell where these things come from, but we saw a little under $1,000 a month just to, to begin with for mm-hmm. the song, just in U.S., wow. um, not not international. And it's it's increasing a little bit. So I think it averages out to about $1,200 a month that we make through these performance royalties, which is the first money that I have ever made right. off of this off of this record. Since it was released in 1986. 1986. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Thank you 30 years later. <laughs> I know, right? The little song that could. It yeah. just keeps going. It's like one of our children that we sent out. And, it keeps, you know, like, <laughs> and they finally, it's finally sending well. back money. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> taking care of you. So now can you extrapolate? I mean, that's good in terms of getting a sense of 30 years later, this song is making this much per month. Mm -hmm. But since you guys have actually gotten songwriting royalties since the beginning, since it was originally played on the radio, can you extrapolate or estimate like what you've received about how much money you missed out on in performance royalties? Had there been a performance royalty when your song was played on the radio? That is hard to tell. I know on terrestrial radio, as a songwriter, John makes about seven cents per play. Mm-hmm. And especially in the 80s, that was that those little ching chings were, you know, coming in quite a bit. But because it has lasted so long, I mean, I, I'm not, you know, a genius at math anyway, <laughs> but it, it would have added up. Yeah, and it would have been significant. Then the whole international piece, because we, I mean, it was a hit in the UK, in Germany and Italy, we still get email from fans in Bulgaria and Russia. And wow, I mean, it's amazing how American culture is spread throughout the world. I mean, it is our one of our biggest imports. And the fact that we're one of three 
countries in the world that doesn't pay performance rights to our artists is just it's despicable. It's despicable. <laughs> and wrong. It is. And that's what we were speaking about with Congressman Nadler about the reciprocity. Yes. Because we are net exporters of culture in America. So, for example, your song gets played all over the place in, in foreign countries. Those countries, if you guys weren't the songwriter, all those performance royalties that, that are sitting there are just sitting in a bank for you somewhere and sitting in some collection agency. Yep. You know, luckily, because you're the songwriters, you were able to get a hold of the songwriting royalties. Yes, and that was one of the things that we actually did right. <laughs> and we made mistakes uh, along the way, but one of them was that we created our own publishing company. So we have somebody administer our publishing, but we have most of the of the rights. Of course, Atlantic Records still owns the master rights to I Can't Wait. And that will probably, I mean, it will be our children's children's children that might see money from that because we still owe them quite a bit for the last record we made. In fact, we got a we got a special delivery UPS yesterday of like a stack of 500 sheets of paper that show how much <laughs> we made over the last year through Atlantic. And we still owe them, I don't know, 225,000 or something like that. So it's, and we made, I think, against that because it's digital now. So there aren't any actual copies of the record that are selling. That's just digital downloads. The money last year, I think, was that was made was like $7,000 in digital downloads. So I don't know. You can do the math on that one, but we're never going to see any money from Atlantic. That's for sure. That is amazing to me. And I it totally want, makes me want to geek out and like get into my label hat and be like, do they cross collateralize? your records, but I won't do that because people will leave in droves. <laughs> I don't want to do that. But one thing, since you bring up Atlantic, you told me a story before that I thought was really fascinating, which is you guys re-recorded your two biggest hits in 2010, and you went to put them up on iTunes, and you found out that Atlantic had never put them on iTunes. That's right. So they just missed this opportunity. They weren't even bothering to try to make money. No. <laughs> 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 and it was just, I think, about a year and a half ago that somebody over there went, oh, gee, I think maybe we should put this one on iTunes, you oh, know. Man. And so it finally was up there. But but people were emailing us and saying, you know, your second record's on iTunes. How come, told you so, how come Poolside isn't on iTunes? And we're like, your biggest record is not on iTunes. Yeah, how? I don't, we don't know, you know. And that could be just an oversight. I mean, I don't want to spend the whole day, like, slagging the majors. But right. it's also the kind of thing that makes you just, because, you know, the, the PR job that has been done in the music industry is that the majors are just evil, 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 and all they do is try to rip off artists and nickel and dime them. But then you find something like this where you're like, it's not just that they're evil. It's also that they're huge corporations, and they have no idea what they're doing half exactly. the time. Exactly. And they just over just didn't put up this best-selling yeah. album. They've got so much they don't even know what they've got. Right. You know, they're just overwhelmed with, you know, and so they're just trying to keep up as they're circling the drain. You know, like <laughs> <laughs> it must not be a very fun world that they're living in either. So, but uh, yeah, anyway, it's, it's crazy. Oh, my goodness. Valerie Day is the singer and percussionist in New Shoes. Valerie, thanks so much for joining us on The Future of What. Thanks for asking me to be here, Porsche. It's been fun. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Kleenex Lilliput, The Decemberists, Deerhoof, and of course our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by The Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. 
For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. 